Gibor Mate is a Vancouver physician who has written a book called The Body Says No. And in this book, Dr. Mate points out that what happens in our mind, that is the, the psychological things that we're processing, impacts our physical health. Now, we know that what happens in our body, of course, impacts what goes on in our mind. A person receives a diagnosis of heart disease or cancer or some kind of life-limiting or life-threatening disease, they're going to experience anxiety or depression. What happens in a person's body affects what happens what happens in a person's body affects what happens in their mind. But the reverse is also true. What happens in our mind, if we're experiencing anxiety or repressed anger, impacts what goes on in our body and may foster disease. And so, there's a lot happening in our outer world right now that gives us cause for worry. So this is an important dynamic to understand. We're hoping that and wondering whether we'll finally emerge out of this pandemic. Uh, this past winter, we experienced record cold temperatures in our province. In the summer before, record heat. And many of us are naturally concerned about the impacts of climate change. As we've just been reminded of, we're uh, witnessing a war in Ukraine and in other parts of our planet. And what happens in the outer world affects what happens in our mind, and what happens in our mind affects what happens in our body. We're in a series right now from the Gospel of John on the I am self-revelatory statements of Jesus. And today we're going to be looking at one of Jesus's I am statements that can help us experience more calm in the face of our anxieties, more peace in the face of our fears. Let me set up the context of our passage. Jesus has gathered with some of his closest students in an upper room in Jerusalem the night before he's going to be executed on a Roman cross. And as he looks into the face of his students, he sees fear there. Uh, they are afraid because there is a bounty on Jesus' head. Powerful people want him dead. And so Jesus' students fear losing their leader, teacher, and friend. They're probably even more afraid for their own lives because they're associated with Jesus. And so they feel that they may be at risk of being crucified as well. And Jesus, sensing their anxiety and fear, offers these words. John 14, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, I would have told you that I am, uh, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you may also be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas, the doubting disciple, asks, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus answers, I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
No one comes to the Father except through me. Let's pray. Living God, we pray that the words of your son Jesus would be our guide today, that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher, and that your glory, your bright glory in us would be our purpose. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So Jesus here is with his students the night before going to the cross. He senses their fear, their fear of losing him, their fear of losing their own lives. And so Jesus offers them these words. Do not let your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. He's referring to heaven here. I am going to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I will come back to take you to be where I am also. And Thomas asks, but how can we know the way? And Jesus says, here's the I am statement. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, our situation isn't exactly the same as the original disciples of Jesus. But during this pandemic, many people, pretty much everyone, has experienced some level of fear over getting COVID-19. And, and, and people, whether they're conscious of it or not, have manifest a fear of death. We saw this really pretty clearly early on in the pandemic. As you remember, people were hoarding, what? Toilet paper and food. Now, in what is hopefully the latter part of the pandemic, where it is, relatively speaking, safer, uh, people, in some cases, still feel afraid about meeting someone in person or working out in the gym in the presence of other human beings or worshiping in person with others. Now, I'm not saying that we should throw all caution out the window in some cases, caution is perfectly appropriate, especially if you are experiencing some kind of health vulnerability. But if we take Jesus at his word, when he says, don't let your heart be troubled, believe in God, believe also in me, I'm preparing a place in heaven for you. I am the way, the truth, and the life. If we take Jesus's words to heart, we do not need to live in a self-absorbed, self-protective fear. Instead, we can find a new peace. We can live with a new kind of confidence and courage. And because less energy is being directed toward unproductive anxiety, we can live by offering more self-giving love to others. Jesus' original disciples believed him when he said, I am preparing a place in heaven for you, and I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the way to God. And they, as a result, did not fear death. We know this because every single one of Jesus' original disciples, except for Judas, who betrayed him, and John, who died, what we might call a natural death on the Isle of Patmos, died a martyr's death. If Jesus' original disciples had simply said, at the point of possible death, look, uh, I, got, I was confused, uh, I wasn't taking my medication or whatever, I was lightheaded, uh, I, I, didn't, I, I didn't get enough sleep. Uh, what was I thinking? Caesar, not Jesus, is Lord. They could have lived. But none of them bailed, none of them caved. They all declared Jesus was Lord, even when it meant death. They were not afraid of death. 
and the early followers of Jesus Christ were not afraid of death and they were fearless in the face of life. The historian Rodney Stark points out the reason why the Christian movement grew in a Roman empire when all the other pagan religions were dying out is because the pagan gods could not inspire their people to love one another sacrificially. But the Christians were following someone who had voluntarily laid down their life for them on a cross so that they could live and called on them to do the same for others. In the third century, during the plague of Cyprian, at its height, 5,000 people a day were dying in the Roman Empire. But during this time, Christian survival rates actually spiked upward. Why? The bishop at the time, Dionysius, explains why. The heathen, he wrote, at the onset of the disease, pushed the sufferers away and fled from their dearest. He explains why Christians had a higher survival rate. He continues, most of our brother and sister Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Many in nursing and curing others transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead. Those early followers of Jesus were not afraid of death because they knew where their ultimate destination lay. And therefore, they faced life fearlessly. And if we believe Jesus' claim to be the way, the truth, and the life, if we know where our ultimate destination lies, it can have a powerfully transformative effect on the way we go through the world. Ernest Becker was a distinguished professor of anthropology at Simon Fraser University, SFU. He wrote the Pulitzer Prize-winning book, The Denial of Death. In that book, Professor Becker pointed out that every fear a human being experiences can be traced back to their fear of death. So we can extrapolate from that. That if somehow we are able to overcome our fear of death because we believe that Jesus conquered death on the cross and rose again and has prepared a place in heaven for us, it means that every other fear in our life can be diminished and we can live with greater peace, greater confidence, more courage, and that we will have more self-giving love to offer others, as was true for the early followers of Jesus. Now, when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, in our modern pluralist world with many religions, that can sound problematic. Many people, out of a noble desire to promote tolerance among the world religions, love the story of the three blind men and the elephant. Are you familiar with this story? Have you heard it before? So this, the, the story goes like this. There are three blind men, and they come upon an elephant, and the first blind man reaches up and happens to grab the elephant's trunk and feels the trunk up and down and says, this being is long and slithery. It's just like a snake. Well, the second blind man just happens to come upon the elephant's leg and says, no, 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 this, this being is like the trunk of a tree. 
The third blind man is coming from a slightly different angle and comes upon the side of the elephant and says, no, 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 no. This being is like a, a, a large flat wall. And the narrator explains that the three blind men represent the world religions. The elephant itself represents God or ultimate reality. And the three blind men or the world religions are all grasping the same thing, just part of it, and they're explaining ultimate reality or God in a slightly different way. It's a very appealing story. I'm attracted to it myself. There's just one major problem with it. It seems to be a very humble story, but the narrator, in fact, is very presumptuous because the narrator presumes to be able to see all of ultimate reality, all of God, the elephant. And the narrator presumes to understand how the different religions of the world are touching just a part of it and how they're interacting with each other. So the story, the explanation breaks down. Now, of course, there are similarities between the major world religions. Religions encourage us, generally speaking, to love one another, to care for those in need. But there are also significant differences among the world religions. And so, for example, with Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, you have religions that affirm that there is only one true God. But with certain forms of Hinduism, we're told that there are more than 300,000 gods. And Zen Buddhism does not affirm the reality of a god. So these are big differences. One god, hundreds of thousands of gods, or no gods. Okay. Uh, certain religions, like Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, have sacred texts that affirm an afterlife. Hinduism and Buddhism do not affirm an afterlife. Hinduism teaches reincarnation, but reincarnation is very different from the afterlife taught in the Bible. So there are key differences. And here is one of the most important differences among the world religions. Among the leaders of what we might call world religions, Jesus Christ is the only one who claims to be God in human flesh and the way to God. C.S. Lewis, the Oxford scholar in his classic work, Mere Christianity, writes these words. There is no parallel in other religions. If you had gone to Buddha and asked him, are you the son of Brahma? He would have said, my son, you are still in the veil of illusion. If you had gone to Socrates and asked, are you Zeus? He would have laughed at you. If you had gone to Muhammad and asked, are you Allah? He would have first rent his clothes in disgust. If you had asked Confucius, are you heaven? I think he would have probably replied, remarks which are not in accordance with nature are in bad taste. <laughs> Earl Palmer is a respected pastor who served for many years as a minister near the University of California at Berkeley and then in the Seattle area. He has spoken here at 10th. Maybe some of you recall him teaching here. Earl Palmer, back in 1963, was a student at Princeton Seminary. And while he was there, the renowned Swiss theologian Karl Barth came to give lectures. Palmer remembers what happened. There was a packed out student lounge. Dr. Barth gave a lecture, 
And then a student raised a hand and asked this. Professor Bart, don't you think that God has revealed himself in other religions and not only in Christianity? Dr. Bart answered, no. God has not revealed himself in any religion, including Christianity. He has revealed himself in his son. He has revealed himself in his son. When we look at the cross, the central symbol of our faith, and we focus on the horizontal dimension of the cross, it suggests that Jesus had this wide welcome. We know that he welcomed tax collectors who in his world were despised because they were seen as people who had betrayed their own people, sold out to Rome in order to enrich themselves. We see Jesus welcoming lepers who were seen as being disgustingly unclean because of their physical condition. We see him embracing a Samaritan woman who was scorned and scandalized because of her lifestyle and her race and ethnicity. Jesus' welcome is astonishingly wide. But when we look at the vertical dimension of the cross, and we hear Jesus saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to God the Father except through me. That can sound rather exclusive. But if Jesus is in fact the Son of God and the way, the truth, and the life, we need to also ask, how does Jesus become the way, the truth, and the life for a particular person? In some cases, it's obvious. A person like Craig in their high school years hears about Jesus, has some doubts, but eventually comes to believe that Jesus died on the cross for his sins and turns his life over to Jesus and says, forgive me, I want to follow you. It's clear how Craig experiences Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life. But what about someone who has never heard the name of Jesus? What about them? I'm very open on this question, and I will freely admit that among theologians and biblical scholars, there is a wide range of views. But I personally believe that God's mercy is far wider than many Christians assert. And I draw that conviction largely from the Bible itself. Jesus once told a story about two men who went to the temple to pray, a Pharisee and a tax collector. And the Pharisee in the temple prays, God, I thank you that I'm not like this scumbag of a sinner tax collector. And then he talks about all of his religious virtues. And the tax collector, according to Jesus, is too ashamed to even lift his eyes toward heaven and pray that way. Instead, bent over, he, he, he simply beats his chest and says, God, have mercy on me. I am a sinner. Have mercy on me. And Jesus says, it was the tax collector who went away justified before God, not the religious leader. And in Jesus' story, he does not mention, Jesus does not mention that the sinner prayed to him, to Jesus, but just to God in general. Let's rewind things even further. Let's go back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. All of whom believed in some kind of creator in, in, in God. All of whom were sinners. None of whom 
knew the name Jesus because they all lived more than 1,700 years before Jesus was born. So they don't know the name of Jesus. Question, will they be in heaven? I've got some pretty good evidence here that I'm about to turn to from the Bible, from Jesus's own words in Matthew 8, 11, where he answers that question. He says, I say to you, many will come from the east and the west and will take their place at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, where? In the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus is saying that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who did not know his name, will be in the kingdom of heaven. I don't claim to understand how it all works. No one really understands for sure. But based on what I know of scripture and the character of God, I believe that there may be people who have not heard the name of Jesus or are not in a conscious relationship with Jesus, but are seeking the creator in some way, the creator that they can intuit and are following their light and are doing the good. That somehow, some way, that the work that Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross is a sacrifice for the sins of the world will somehow be good for them as well. I personally live with that hope because I know that God's mercy is far greater than my own. Now, some people have problems with the claim that Jesus makes, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Let me briefly now talk about Jesus and his claim to be the truth and then briefly about his claim to be the life. We tend to think of truth as some kind of abstract idea or maybe a statement of some kind, some kind of proposition. But according to scripture, truth, ultimate truth is embodied in a person. It's embodied in Jesus Christ. After I finished my undergrad studies, I read a book by the historian Paul Johnson called The Intellectuals. And in this book, Paul Johnson points out that many of the towering intellectuals that have shaped Western civilization powerfully led despicable lives. He points out that, sure, they talked about things like the importance of loving all of humanity, but then they abused their own spouses, were repeatedly unfaithful, they were cruel to their own children, and Johnson asked the question, should we entrust our lives to someone whose ideas were completely contradicted by the way they actually lived? Good question. Maybe I'm just a bit more pragmatic. I think that people who behave really badly can sometimes have really good ideas. But I think most of us would hesitate committing our whole life to a person's way and to that person, even if their ideas were good, if their lives utterly contradicted what they were saying and teaching. I'm not saying that every teacher is an out-and-out -out hypocrite. Obviously, I'm not saying that. But every teacher, every guide, every philosopher has not fully lived up to their ideals. I certainly haven't as a pastor. Except one, except one. And his name would be Jesus. And Jesus alone perfectly embodied the love of which he preached. He alone totally exuded 
the wisdom in his actual life that he taught about, he alone completely demonstrated the justice of which he advocated for. And so if you doubt that Jesus is the way, consider his claim to be the truth. And if there is alignment, maybe that fact can lead you closer to embracing Jesus as the way. And then finally, Jesus says, I am the life. I am the life. You know, when I was 15 or 16 years of age, as I've shared with some of you as an adolescent, I believed in the existence of God, but I felt that if I gave myself fully to God, I would miss out on tons of fun, that life would just not be interesting anymore or as interesting. But someone at a summer camp, at a Christian summer camp, a counselor, explained to me in our small group that Jesus did not come so that your life would be boring, so that it would be some drag. He came so that you might have life to the very maximum and to the very full. And I thought, wow, wow, that's so interesting. And I decided to experiment by following Jesus. That experiment has lasted, what, four decades? And I have no regrets. I think of someone in our faith community uh, who was telling me, I believed in God as a girl, as a child. But when I became an adult, I sort of just gave up on my faith. And recently I've come back to God and now I have this unexplainable energy and joy. Something has happened to me. Something has changed. And she said, you know, there are people around me who are saying, there's this new glow about you, this this new light about you. And she said, the other day at work, someone was looking at me and said, there's something different about you now. There's this new light, this new glow. And he asked me, is there a new man in your life? Got a new man in your life? Tell me, tell me, tell me. Do tell. And she said, I couldn't resist. So I said, yes. (laughs) And his name is Jesus. (laughs) His name is Jesus. And so if you wonder whether Jesus really is the way, the truth, and the life, perhaps pray to him and say, if you're really there, if you're really God in human flesh, Give me your life and see if it makes a difference. And if it does, follow him in this life and know him in the world to come. Whether we are living through a pandemic, a time of climate change, whether we are in a world of war or facing some other kind of challenge or stress, we can still hear the words of Jesus coming down to us, coming to us afresh, even today, where he says, do not let your hearts be troubled. You trust in God, trust also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going to prepare a place in heaven for you. And if I go, I will come back and I will take you to be with myself. And we ask, how do we get there? Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If we embrace that truth, that reality, it will radically change the way we go through the world. Professor Becker said, every human fear can be traced back to the fear of death that we have. We overcome our fear of death through Jesus Christ. We will have not only a newfound peace, but we will have more courage and more capacity to offer ourselves to others in non-self-protective, 
generous, self-giving love. We will have more with which to make our troubled world a better place. Some people have said, if you're too heavenly minded, you'll be no earthly good. The exact opposite is true. If you are sure of your destination, if heaven is on your mind, you will be far more earthly good. Let's pray together. I want you to just, in this moment, be conscious, not so much of me or anything else in the room, but be conscious of the fact that you are right now in the presence of your creator, in the presence of God. And I want to ask you this question. Hopefully death is a long ways away, but it will come, surely it will come for you and me. If you were to die, do you know for certain that you will be with God in heaven? You know, my own earthly father was an incredible man, more integrity than anyone I knew personally. And yet as he was dying, he confided in me. I'm not sure, I'm not absolutely sure that I'm headed for heaven. And he asked me this question, do you think it will count with God that I am the father of a pastor? I said, sorry, dad, that ain't gonna help you at all right now. <laughs> he said, can't I sort of grab your coattails and come into heaven that way? That's not gonna help you. But you grab the coattails of Jesus. You wrap your arms around his waist as he embraces you. And that will be more than enough for you. And if you have any doubt about your future and your destiny, Wrap your arms around Jesus as he wraps his arms around you and say, forgive my sins. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. God, have mercy on me, a sinner, and make me new. And he will. And you can be sure of your destination and fearless in the face of life. And if you've made your peace with God, if you have no reason not to, consider being baptized this Easter Sunday. If you have no reason not to, you can talk to Craig or any of my colleagues about that or email Craig at craig at 10th.ca. But embrace Christ as he embraces you and know the way to God. Know God's way to you. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.